0: 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Sunday morning we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians together in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and if you just get their attention, they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands, and please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning we pick it up in verse 20, the word of the Lord. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Let's pray together. Thank you Lord so much for this passage and we thank you that these verses contain truth that is necessary for us to understand and to know and truth that is important to our relationship with you and to the strength of our spirit, the inner man that you have produced in us by your Holy Spirit. And we want to learn your word. We want to worship you with our minds. But, Lord, we want your word to go deeper than that. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit this morning, that your word would go all the way into our heart and into our spirit, and that you would deepen and broaden our relationship with you and our understanding of you, as a result. And so we ask, Lord, you told us to ask and to seek and to knock without hesitation, no matter how big. So we ask, and so we look to receive it from you now as we study your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. A false teaching had taken hold in the church at Corinth, and that false teaching is perfectly encapsulated by the Apostle Paul there in verse 12, where some were saying there is no resurrection. And Paul's correction of this uh, false teaching makes up the entirety of uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, which is one of the most uh, beloved passages in all of the Bible. For Christians. And in every part of his correction, as he makes his way in writing this entire chapter, there are certain, it breaks into different blocks of thought. He's got so many things that he wants to say related to this, and each one of the meanings or the point that he's making behind each of these blocks is so important to him and so important to us, and, and so uh, he does exactly that, and the desire to encourage us, and the desire to comfort us with the priceless truth that's held in each section of the chapter. In the first section of this chapter, verses 1 through 11, he let these Christians know that there is no gospel apart from the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so often people tend to think of salvation, God's gospel means good news, God's good news message to sinners of the fact that we can have a relationship with God and that relationship is possible because of Jesus' death upon the cross to pay the price that we could never pay for the forgiveness of our sins and that that salvation becomes ours by putting our faith in His Savior And so often we think of our salvation solely in the context of the cross, and sometimes the resurrection is minimized, and he let these Christians know that if there's no resurrection, then there is no gospel. And then he went on further, as we noticed last week, and described what we would lose, what would become a casualty in the Christian life, if there were no resurrection. And he listed these Uh, seven things that we took a look at uh, that were consequences of denying the reality of the resurrection, and that to do that, we realize, is essentially to gut the gospel and is to really um, destroy Christianity. And then in this passage that we read here this morning, the apostle makes the single great point in assuring us that our resurrection at the moment of our death, is as sure as Jesus' resurrection from the dead. There were probably up to this point, and you have to remember that in the ancient world, when these letters were written and then delivered to these churches, they probably called an evening service. Uh, which is when they probably met because slaves would most often work in the morning. They would have the evening off. A lot of Christians in the early church were slaves. And so it was probably an evening service that this letter was read to the church. And so as they're sitting there and they're listening to what Paul has written here related to the resurrection, it might have caused some of them to think, well, we're very thankful and glad for Jesus' resurrection from the dead, but what in the world does that have to do with me? What help is His resurrection to me when I die? And that's the question that Paul answers in this passage. He begins by declaring, notice in verse 22, that in Adam all die. And so he reminds the readers, and he reminds us of the fact that Concerning the origin of death, of how and when death got introduced into the human condition, and that it is, was, and is a consequence of Adam's sin in that ancient Garden of Eden. God had spoken to Adam and Eve in that garden, and he had said to them, Of all of the trees of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of that tree. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We don't know how much time passes, but the next part of the biblical record for us, we find Adam and Eve at the base of that tree, and they sinned, they partook of that forbidden fruit. And the consequence was just as God said it would be, a spiritual death, occurred immediately in their lives. They were cut off from the depth of relationship and intimacy of relationship that they had known with God up to that point. They experienced a spiritual death at that moment. But verse 22 of our passage tells us that physical death was also introduced into human existence at that moment. And so you have immediately after Genesis chapter 3, where this fall occurs, right when you get into chapter 5 of the same book... We run into the first genealogy in the Bible that records the genealogy from Adam to Lamech, who was the father of Noah, and it reads, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Seven times the phrase is repeated. Now... Perhaps someone might protest at this point. You're being polite not to do it outwardly, but maybe in your heart you would protest at this point in the sermon and say, I don't believe in the Garden of Eden. I don't believe in Adam and Eve. I think the whole thing is mythology altogether. I think, yes, it's in the Bible, but it it doesn't symbolize, it doesn't speak to a reality of a beginning or a fall or any of these things. It's just images. It's a story meant to communicate some kind of, you know, spiritual truth in, in some way. And so the question then becomes, how do I know that the Bible's record of the fall of man is true? How do I know that I am a descendant of Adam and Eve, that I am fallen, as the Bible teaches? And you know, those are good questions. And God is never afraid of a good question. And He answers the question. And He answers those questions in four words In verse 22, in Adam all die. Death reveals each and every one of us to be descendants of that ancient Adam and Eve. And it ties each of us to that ancient Garden of Eden. Death is like a shackle that's put at our ankle and the chain runs all the way back through human history to the very beginning, thousands of years or however many years. And death in our life ties us back to that ancient Garden of Eden. I want you to also notice in verse 22 that word all, in Adam all die. And this speaks of something that is obvious, but we don't always stop and think about it. And that is the universality of this thing called death. And we read of the proof of death in every genealogy that's in the Bible. And there are lots of genealogies in the Bible. But our proof of the existence of death its universality the fact that it is making and has made an uninterrupted march through human history we don't have to reach back to ancient genealogies in the bible it's as current as the morning newspaper in any newspaper in every city all around the world that's printed has a section of it called the obituaries and it testifies to to the reality of death and the universality of death. And so death is all around us. There's no denying it. Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter to a French scientist in the 1700s, and what he wrote has been paraphrased by someone fairly paraphrased, And made into a saying that most of us have heard one time or another in our life. And the saying goes like this. The only thing certain in life are death and taxes. So death is a sure thing in life. And we know that. And we recognize it. But in our culture, in general, our culture is one that does everything that it can to hide the reality of Death. It's funny to watch how we as a culture address death in comparison to other cultures. And so we try to hide it. We take dead bodies and we put them in vehicles that are made for dead bodies We quietly transport them to buildings where uh, we take those bodies. And then later in the week, services are held in those buildings where with hushed tones we remember the life of the person who has died. Everything's hush-hush. Everything's quiet. Everything's out of sight and out of mind. It's interesting that in other cultures of the world, cultures that we would consider vastly inferior to ours. We would consider them to be primitive cultures uh, in comparison to how we view ourselves. And yet, how they deal with death is, in many ways, much more mature because death is dealt with openly in those cultures. For example, in many cities in the world, where somebody dies, and once that person dies, their body is then carried through the village by their loved ones. And as the body is carried through the village, the whole village will then come together and they will join the procession to the cemetery And then the body will be uh, laid to rest, so to speak, in the ground. It's all open. Every time somebody dies, the whole city knows about it and participates in the remembrance related to that death. I remember being in India many years ago now, and I was with a couple of other gentlemen, and we were in a park. And as we're sitting in the park, we saw something you never see in the United States of America, a group of friends carrying their friend's dead body in a sheet across the park to then, in their culture of that part of India, to deliver that body not to a graveyard, but to deliver it into the river. Well, it's an open handling of death. Everybody sees death every day, all of the time. And when you grow up in those kind of cultures, or you're a part of those kind of cultures, then at a very early point in your life, you'd come to grips with this thing called death and its reality. But in the United States of America, what we do is, when we're uncomfortable with a reality, we rename it. We simply take what we don't like and we deliver that to the wordsmiths and that is an art now in the United States. And we say, give us another phrase for this. Give us another word for this so it loses its sting, it loses its bite, and uh, soften it Don't so that it's not as harsh as it is. And so we do that with almost everything we feel uncomfortable with in the culture. I remember reading the newspaper a number of years ago, and... Uh, of a hospital in the united states of america that determined and made it their policy that the word death was no longer to be used in the hospital all deaths were now to be referred to from that moment forward as negative patient outcomes now about that for trying to escape the reality of death and to somehow make people Uh, believe that it really doesn't exist. And so the hospital could say, listen, we don't have... Nobody dies in this hospital. Sure, we've had our share of negative patient outcomes, but um, nobody dies here. But this, humanly speaking, death is inescapable, and death stalks every single one of us. From the moment of our conception to the moment of our birth, Every time, and you don't say it, but you hold that little baby, and that heart has only so many beats in it, it has those lungs have so many breaths in it, uh, that we, the moment we're born, we begin the process of death. And that's a reality. And that's why Paul, in verse 26, describes death. As an enemy, death is our enemy. And death waits patiently to claim each and every human being who's ever born. And it doesn't matter how many vitamins you take. It doesn't matter how much exercise we get, how careful we are about our diet. We may extend our life by virtue of that, by some days or weeks or months or years. But death is always waiting in the wings to claim us. Death is sure. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Now, thankfully, Paul gives us the bad news, but he doesn't leave us there. Because he then goes on to declare in verse 22, Even so, as sure as death is, as undeniable as death is, even so, in Christ we shall be made alive. And the point that Paul is making here is that, yes, death is as sure as anything in life. That's an undeniable reality. But for the Christian, our resurrection is just as sure. In fact, our resurrection, our victory over death is as sure, Paul says, as Jesus' resurrection, as his victory over death. You notice in verse twenty three that Jesus is described as the first fruits it 's an Old Testament phrase that was a, to, was a word that was used to describe a feast that God gave in the Old Testament to Moses and to the children of israel it 's a part of the law of Moses, and this feast of first fruits is The details related to it are found in the book of Leviticus chapter 23. The characteristics of the feast are interesting. In the spring of the year, right before the barley harvest in Israel, the first portion of the harvest, let's say you had an acre or two acres planted in barley, you would go to the corner of your barley field and you would take out the scythe and you would cut a section of it put together a sheaf of this grain, you would then take it to the tabernacle where the priest would take it and wave it before the Lord as a thanksgiving offer. It was an acknowledgement the, to the Lord of the fact that this harvest has come from you. We are giving you the first fruits of of this, uh, of this harvest. And so it was it was done to communicate that this sheaf of grain was just the start of something really big. It was the start of a greater harvest that was to follow and that this harvest was all due to the grace of God. The date of the Feast of First Fruits as it relates to Jesus and Paul's Referring to him as the first fruits is very, very fascinating related to the time of Jesus' crucifixion. The feast of first fruits always fell on the day after the Sabbath of the feast of unleavened bread. When Jesus was crucified for where the Passover landed, when he died for our sins, the Passover landed, as it always does, on the 14th of the first month. The next day began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in that year, that began on the Saturday. The day after the Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the day then that started the Feast of fruits. That was the Sunday in which Jesus was resurrected from the grave. He was the fulfillment not only of the feast of Passover, not only of the feast of unleavened bread, but also in his resurrection of the feast of first fruits. And so all of it speaks of Jesus. This feast speaks of his resurrection from the dead. And that's why Paul uses this very language to describe Jesus' resurrection in his letter to the church at Corinth, again in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And the point that the Holy Spirit is making through Paul is this, that just as that sheaf of Wheat was offered to God on the feast of first fruits. That physical sheaf would then be followed by this great physical harvest of grain. That so too Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the guarantee of our resurrection from the dead one day. Again, that sheaf of wheat, sheaf of barley, it represented the fact that this is just the beginning of a great harvest to follow. Spiritually, Jesus' resurrection from the dead was communicating this is just the start of a great spiritual harvest that is to follow people who were going to come to Him who would also leave death as empty-handed in their lives as Jesus did concerning his. Now notice in verse 23 that Paul speaks of an order here in all of this. He says, Jesus is the first fruits, the first to die, rise from the dead, never to die again, to be risen into a glorified body, to live now, to uh, enjoy an endless life. And then Paul, in the same breath, mentions that those who are in Christ at His coming. So the order will be Jesus first, and then those who are Christ at His coming. Speaking of Christians. And the idea is that though we may die, in that very instant, we will at the same time be resurrected, so to speak. We will rise from the dead into a new glorified body made for eternity, never to die again. Now, there are some people who will experience this part of following Jesus as the first fruits and receive that new glorified body and and this victory, this resurrection life. For some, that's going to happen at the rapture of the church which is spoken of in 1 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Allow me to read it to you. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. There is going to be a generation of Christians who will never, ever taste death at all. They will be taken right out of this life into the fullness of everlasting life. But every other Christian that, that isn't a part of that, Rapture of the church, and we have 2,000 years' worth of Christians that are in that category, every other Christian, this occurs when Christ comes for us individually at the time of our death. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his second letter concerning this, in chapter 5, let me read that to you as well. He said, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, this body is destroyed. We die. We have a body, a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, speaking of a new body, made for eternity. For in this body, he said, we groan. You reach a point in life where every movement has a sound. And then you reach a point in life where every movement has a groan. For in this body we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked or disembodied spirit. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed or be a disembodied spirit or a spirit being, but further clothed with a new body that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared, this, uh, prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord." In a technical sense, no Christian ever dies. But you have to use the word death or died or die. You've got to use something that the culture recognizes for the end of this life. You take the Apostle Paul even inspired by the Holy Spirit, with the greatness of his intellect, and you see him try to describe death for the Christian, and he uses the word die, he uses the word death, because it's the word the culture understands. But in the back of his mind, he realizes that we never really die. And so then he'll use phrases like, those who have fallen asleep. I mean, when somebody dies and you see them there in the casket, What does it look like they're doing? What What activity in life does it look most like? Jogging? No, it looks like they're sleeping. And so that's why it's described in that way. So no Christian ever dies. Jesus spoke concerning this, and he declared to Martha in John chapter 11, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He said, he who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me, that's every Christian in this room. He who lives, you're alive, you believe in him. He who lives and believes in me shall never die. Believest thou this? He said to Martha. Christians don't die, but we do move. That's the best word for it. We do move. So often in the culture we think of death and somebody dying as ceasing to exist. But we never cease to exist, not for a moment. My relationship with God will n- not even cease for a nanosecond. There won't even be a blip. There won't even be a split second of an interruption at all. It will, we simply move out of this physical body and into a new body made for heaven and made for eternity. And D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, um, who famously captured it exactly in this way. He wrote, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment I shall be more alive than I am now. And that's the truth. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He went on to say in that same quote uh, wonderfully, he said, I, have go- I shall have gone up higher that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body like unto his, Jesus' glorious body. And what Paul is saying in this passage, he's telling us that the two resurrections, Christ's resurrection and our resurrection, they stand together together that our resurrection is as sure as his resurrection is, and that's as sure as it gets. And so here he answers the question where someone might think, I'm glad and I'm thankful that Jesus defeated death. I'm glad that he conquered death as is evidenced in his own resurrection. But what does that have to do with my dilemma? I'm still stuck unless there's a way that Jesus is able to share his victory over death with me. How am I able to share in his victory over death? That's a big question, and that's an important question. And Paul answers it the same way, two two different ways, but the same way. In verse 22, he says... How we share in his resurrection, in his victory over death, verse 22, by being in Christ. Verse 23, by belonging to Christ. By simply putting my trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. And then the Holy Spirit comes into my life born again by the Holy Spirit. I receive everlasting life at that moment. And if you're a Christian, you've already done that. But if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you think to yourself, how is it that that victory over death, how can that guarantee of resurrection following this life be made yours? And the answer is the same for you. By repenting of your sin, turning to God, confessing your sin to God, asking for his forgiveness as you put your trust in the Savior that he sent into the world to pay the price that we could never, ever pay on our own, unqualified to do so. And as you put your faith in Jesus, then all of this becomes yours. Now, Paul closes this section here. that, uh, that deals with the subject of death. And in verses 24 through 28, he kind of tells us the rest of the story. He lets us know. It's kind of like, well, now that we're talking about death, we've talked about the fact, Paul would say, that death has been defeated by Jesus. But now I want to tell you the ultimate end of death, and the ultimate end of death is that it will be destroyed. The end of death is the death of death. One day God is going to destroy uh, death, and you notice there in verse 26 that he says as much. One day death is going to be destroyed. And so this passage talks about the end of death or the destruction of death ultimately occurs at What he's describing here is the end of what's known as the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ. Kind of the um, end times, or they call it eschatological um, series of events that make up the last days or the end things. The next step in all of this is the rapture of the church. And then following that, there'll be a seven-year period of tribulation upon the earth. At the end of that, Jesus makes his second coming to the earth with us as Christians. He then establishes a thousand-year reign upon uh, this earth. At the end of that reign, during the thousand years, Satan will be bound at the end of that reign, he will be loose, tempt the world once again. Many people will follow him in a final rebellion against Jesus and against his reign upon the earth. That rebellion will be ultimately put down. And at that time, Revelation chapter 20 tells us that Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet are then cast into an eternal lake of fire. Then there follows that, the judgment of the unrighteous and the unsaved at the white throne, judgment of Christ. And following that judgment, we're told again in Revelation chapter 20, that death and Hades are both then cast into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20 verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And at that moment in time there will be no more death. At that point people will be permanently and undyingly uh, have fixed the eternity that they have chosen and they are in that fixed place. Jesus then, at that point, will have brought an end to all rebellion against God, man's rebellion, uh, the devil's rebellion, the Antichrist's rebellion, the false prophet's rebellion, and have defeated the uh, enemy of death, and all of that is then uh, anything, any rebellion against God's rule and his authority and his power as he describes it in verse 24, all of that is put down and Jesus delivers the world to the Father. At that point, the creation, because it is tainted and fallen, it is destroyed, melted with a fervent heat. And then a new create, new heavens and a new earth are created wherein righteousness dwells. It will never be spoiled or ruined by sin or rebellion against God. And that great act is spoken of in the first verse of Revelation uh, chapter 21. And the main point that Paul is making in all of this is to remind us of what will happen to death itself. Verse 26, look with me one final time. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That's the future of death. One day, defeat it now, one day it will be destroyed. Excuse me for a moment while I have an internal hip hip hooray. Just allow me this moment right here. Death is an enemy. The pain, the sorrow, the difficulty, the heartache. Not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, that it puts people through. Not only concerning our own lives, but the lives of others. And one day it will be destroyed. Good riddance to it. Good riddance to it. And then an eternity, uninterrupted by death, you think about how unspeakably wonderful it is to realize that the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is telling us that the two resurrections, Christ's and ours, stand together. That our resurrection and our victory over death is as sure as His resurrection and His victory over death. And again, that is as sure as as it gets. So yes, death is real. It hasn't yet been destroyed, but it has been defeated. And whenever we think of this enemy called death in the course of our pilgrimage, if death comes close to us and God is going to take us home to heaven prior to the rapture of the church, then we can say in the face of death, You are real, but you will not have the final say in my life because resurrection will be the final word concerning me. All you will ever accomplish in my life is to usher me into the very presence of heaven and all of its glory. What a wonderful thing to think about. What Jesus has done for us in defeating death. That takes a big concern off of our list in life, ladies and gentlemen. Today there's a lot of pressure on preachers, people like me, to preach to meet felt needs and uh, the emotional needs of people that come into the room. And there's a place for that. That is important. We do have emotional needs. Even I like a perky sermon once in a while. But you can spend your whole life meeting felt needs, addressing felt needs, and never address the real needs. And God is concerned about our felt needs. But He is the one that comes in and looks and says, I know of the needs that you have the big needs, the real needs, who your real enemies are. And I've provided a Savior and a salvation in the face of those enemies. You think about how many people will spend 60, 70, 80 years of life only focused upon their felt needs. And it won't be till very, very late in their life They'll really sit down seriously in the way that a child in an African village would be forced to at the age of six. And they do at the age of 80. Finally sit down and give some serious consideration to this thing called death. And to realize how great a need of victory over that enemy is. And then how wonderful to realize and perhaps in the minds and in the hearts of some of you in this room today to realize that God has met one of the greatest needs in my life long before I would ever come to face it or ever come to appreciate how He's provided that victory for me. Jesus loves you. God loves you wants to spend eternity with you, wants a relationship with you in this life, but not to end in this life, a relationship that will go on forever and ever and ever. That resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it has provided to us. Only the Creator could know us so well Only the one who's been around since the Garden of Eden could know what our needs are with such clarity and then provide for them as he has. We praise him this morning for not only seeing our needs with the clarity that he has, but then providing for those needs in the wonderful way that he has. If you don't know Christ yet, you have never trusted in him as your Savior. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service. And they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God today. It's all there for the asking. And it's all there for the receiving. Because Jesus has done all the heavy lifting in providing it to you. There's nothing we can add to it. That's why it's a free gift to you today. Come and receive God's gift and then all that is bound up in it, and then live to discover that He has covered every need in your life through the death and the burial and the resurrection of His Son. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for seeing our needs in a way that only you could. Thank you for talking about things so openly and so honestly and so maturely and candidly and lovingly and caringly. Thank you that you don't run from the big, hard things in life that we're facing or to try to change the terminology. Thank you for your clarity, Lord, in speaking to our need. And then thank you for the demonstration of your power and your love in providing for our need. Thank you for the death and the burial. And the resurrection of Jesus, the enormous price that was paid to have these great weights lifted off of us in this life, Lord, and to provide us with such hope and confidence and the fullness of the glory of heaven on the other side of all of this. We thank you for the price that you were willing to pay as a father, to make it possible. And Jesus, we thank you for the price that you were willing to pay and all that you were willing to endure to make it so as well. Thank you for so unifying our resurrection to your own. Thank you for that hope. And we thank you in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.